The good friends of Jackson Elias would like to thank our backers for funding the podcast. If you would like to become a good friend of the good friends of Jackson Elias, just follow the Patreon link from blasphemoustomes.com. Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Max Anderson. This week we're continuing with our discussion of The Shadow Out of Time. And in other news, we have a discussion forum. We do, thanks to our good friends at the Miskatonic University podcast, who have very kindly set us up with a sub-forum on their forums. Because we know bugger all about running forums, they're very good at it, so... They, they're, yeah, they're letting us um, just leash off them, which is really nice. Yeah, so if you head over there, we've got a thread for the previous few episodes. And um, you know, if anybody else wants to discuss anything, then please do come over and join us. Mm. Yep, you can find a link off Blasphemous Tomes. Uh, if you just find the link across the top that says Forum, that actually goes straight to the discussion forum on the Miskatonic University podcast. Or alternatively, you can just type mu-podcast.com into your web browser and go there as if by magic. But before we get into any of that good stuff... And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And our Lovecraftian word of the week this time is... Antediluvian. Uh, the word that both me and Paul seem to think came from Vampire was coined by Vampire the Masquerade, but apparently not. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it dates from 1990. Yeah. Yes. And for those of us who read things that aren't role-playing books, we knew, we knew the word before then. <laughs> that means third-generation vampire. Big nasty. Oh, for fuck's yeah. sake. <laughs> I don't know you people. <laughs> Of course, the, the true meaning being uh, ancient or antiquated, old, prehistoric. I'm sure I've used those terms to describe my dad before. <laughs> Your dad's about the same age as I am, isn't he? Moving on. Um, <laughs> who was it that coined the term Daddy Dawood? <laughs> anyway, um, also supremely dated, pertaining or belonging to the time period prior to the great or destructive flood or deluge. Uh, more likely linked to the biblical uh, version thereof, pertaining or belonging to the time before Noah's flood. And I think, again, uh, Lovecraft used it primarily just to mean old, 
just as a very kind of exciting, interesting sounding word for old or very old or ancient. I don't think he ever really strictly used it in the biblical sense because that wouldn't really tie in with Lovecraft's writing. It wouldn't really, would it? No, but it's a nice sounding word. Um, and like you say, a lot sort of more flavour than just old. It does seem to me at times he did, definitely did swallow a thesaurus and occasionally just coughed up something. From the lurking fear. Now and then, beneath the brown pall of leaves that rotted and festered in the antediluvian forest darkness, I could trace the sinister outlines of some of those low mounds which characterised the lightning-pierced region. From the dream quest of unknown Kadath. At least twice in the world's history, the other gods set their seal upon Earth's primal granite. Once in antediluvian times, as guessed from a drawing in those parts of the Nicotic manuscripts, too ancient to be read, and once on Hatheg Klaf, when Barzai the Wise tried to see Earth's gods dancing by moonlight. And from the strange high house in the mist, even the terrible old man who talks to leaden pendulums in bottles, buys groceries with centuried Spanish gold, and keeps stone idols in the yard of his antediluvian cottage in Water Street, can say only these things were the same when his grandfather was a boy, and that must have been inconceivable ages ago, when Belcher or Shirley or Ponal or Bernard was governor of His Majesty's province of the Massachusetts Bay. Having provided a detailed synopsis of the story, now we discuss our thoughts about The Shadow Out of Time. I think I mentioned something about this when we were talking about the story in detail, but I don't see this as an accident that this was published in the science fiction magazine. It certainly wouldn't have made it into a horror one, no. Yeah, I was having a bit of trouble kind of reconciling this story, and having read it once a, a few weeks ago for this podcast, I was kind of turning over why I didn't really feel happy with it. Um, I actually feel happier now, I think, having having thought it over, but it just occurred to me that, is this a horror story? No. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, there's certainly horrific elements in there. I mean, the, the whole idea of having your life stolen by this alien entity who comes along, takes five years of your life, leaves you with nightmares and so on, that is a pretty solid horror trope. Uh, and I think as a human being, that is probably one of the most horrific things that could happen to you. And it destroys Peasley's life, it destroys his relationship with his family, leaves him thinking that he's gone mad. And yeah, it's an incredibly destructive, uh, incredibly horrible thing to cope with, particularly once he starts getting the nightmares afterwards. But I don't think Lovecraft really makes the most of portraying those aspects. No, he, he certainly doesn't describe them in the same kind of evocatively horrible terms that he would do in some of his other stories. It's also very much an element of the story. It's not the overarching theme. It's almost... There's a moment where it could get an interesting story, and then again, as you say before, that it's, no, I'm going to tuck that under the carpet. We can't have any ten We can't have any tension. We can't have any atmosphere here. I've got an essay to write. That it does come across as very clinical, very cold, very long and drawn out, which are more, in my experience, elements that I would associate with science fiction. I th yeah, I think there's more of, not a sense of horror, but more a sense of wonder. He's showing us all these things, all these... He, you know, the guy, um, he, he's living a mundane life, he is quite happy with it all, and then he gets taken back on like, a mystical journey. It's like through the Phantom Tollbooth or something. He goes <laughs> back into this distant 
well, into this other place. And, you know, if it were the case that he were, you know, if we wanted to make a, a kind of horror equal to this, you know, maybe you're possessed by, you know, ancient sorcerer who who takes your form, but you're in his coffin and you're trapped in there trying to scrabble in, trying to get out. But it's not like that at all. You're in these cone-shaped bodies and it seems like you're pretty much given your freedom to do what you want after a while. You're not, it doesn't seem to be constrained. Uh, you're allowed to peruse their books, talk to other people like yourself, talk in golf traveling, see the world. Well, I think it's fairly significant that the lifestyle that Lovecraft describes for Peasley when he's, he's stuck back in that ancient time of the great race almost sounds like Lovecraft's ideal life. Yeah. You know, he's writing, he's reading, you know, these old manuscripts, he's talking to interesting people, he's seeing wonders. I mean, this is just Lovecraft heaven. Yeah, I can very, very much see that. The other thing which I think stops this feeling quite so much like a horror story is I, Lovecraft obviously did quite a lot of well-building and background creation for all of his stories. But I think, you know, this is one of the examples where more of that's put on the page. I mean, it's not kind of hinted at, you know, there's not elements that are drawn into a larger narrative. It's sort of, you know, I, I've come up with this setting and, you know, I'm just going to write the setting and show it all to you. I mean, there are certainly elements of that in, you know, say, at the Mountains of Madness, mm -hmm. but in there it's tied in with much, mu much more of a story. And also... At least one thing that At the Mountains of Madness has and the Shadow of Time doesn't is that it doesn't have tension. I don't know that Lovecraft was particularly trying to make it a horror story. I don't think we're saying he failed to make a horror story. He was trying to write a weird story. Um, you know, I don't think he failed in that respect. It's just that that was my expectation that it would be more of a horror story than it was. Yeah, and also a lot of Lovecraft's horror stories are still very strongly science fictional in their elements. You know, again, going back to The Mountains of Madness, that is fundamentally a science fiction story. And from beyond. Yeah. Again, building on the idea that this is fundamentally a science fiction story, this is another example of Lovecraft using what was for the time cutting-edge science in there. Uh, I mean, not only is there all the stuff to do with nuclear-powered vehicles and so on, which you know, obviously predates the atom bomb, and you know, any actual functioning nuclear power plants. But there's the fact that he makes a lot of references to Einstein in this as well. Mm. When he's talking about you know, space-time as being a continuum and you know, this thing that the great race moved through, you know, he's referring to Einstein and, and general relativity at this stage. Shows he's certainly keeping with the times, even if he doesn't interact with them so much. Well, he was very fascinated by science, and not only does he kind of draw upon it, but he's, he's clearly kind of influenced by it in his approach to the cosmos and his uh, rejection of religion, I think. The H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast also make the point that Lovecraft is forever giving us civilizations in decline. You know, we see this in... Um, at the Mountains of Madness, when he's looking at the carvings on the walls and he talks about, you know, they, they've fallen into a kind of a decadent phase. Uh, the older things were, you know, that, their, their civilization was declining. And when he goes back to the, the, the great race of Yith, uh, it's a similar kind of thing. You know, the, the th the, their civilization's in decline uh, and they're looking forward to, you know, traveling through time into, into the, the insect bodies. Uh, and this kind of reflects Lovecraft's feeling of his own place in 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 history in the uh, in the nineteen twenties nineteen thirties. That's interesting. Then, cause, um, the way I'd look at it is not so much that the great race was in decline, 
but just transitioning from one age to another um, might be um, reflected in the fact that this is Lovecraft's attempt at moving into a slightly different genre that maybe maybe not saying that horror is behind him but that at least he is testing the waters and this is a new age of his writing another point that cropped up was that this portrays more family relationships than most of his other stories you know we've got the breakup between him and his wife uh, the estrangement of two of his children uh, and you know, whilst I said it doesn't really go into the, the horror themes as much as it could do, uh, you know, we do get the, the sadness of the, of the loss of family and, and so on that doesn't really play a big part in his other stories. The only other Lovecraft story I can think of that touches on family is one that we've also looked at before, being The Thing on the Doorstep. Um, it's definitely not a topic that comes up often in his work. No, most of Lovecraft's characters do tend to be very isolated, isolated people. Uh, they they seem to exist in social vacuums. Very much like himself. And uh, the thing on the doorstep is very much about you know the, the corruption of that family as as a, a strong theme in this uh, you know element of the story. You know, is it is his wife actually his wife and things like that? Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a different thing here to some degree. You know, his wife and family are his proper wife and family. Going back to what you just said, though, Matt, I'd, I'd actually dispute Lovecraft existing in a social vacuum. I mean, he grew up surrounded by family. Uh, he, he he was married for, admittedly, a, a small number of years. Uh, but more than that, he always he travelled around a lot. He always had a close circle of friends. And even if he wasn't physically close to his people, the sheer amount of correspondence that he did... I mean, this was a man who was probably more socially connected in his own way than any of us ever will be. Mm. I just pictured that it was def it was more communication that was removed by that step. That it was very in it was very non personal by the fact it was lots of letters rather than meeting them face to face. Well, except he did meet a lot of these people face to face and stayed with them and travelled round. Ah, I wasn't aware of that. I yeah. thought yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought he I thought he was more of a great correspondent that was more of a recluse that sat away writing. No, no, he was a bit of both. But this raises an interesting point in you know if you reflect on his own family and I'm getting this uh, from from Joshi. Um, but the fact that when he there's, there's kind of two themes here. The first is when he sets Peasley's breakdown is 1908 to 1913. Sorry, Freudian slip. When he sets Peasley's possession is 1908 to 1913, which parallels Lovecraft's breakdown. If you know, he's huh. portrayed as having a nervous breakdown in that period from the age of you know from leaving well dropping out of school sort of around the age of 18. Uh, into his early 20s when he was kind of reclusive and shut away and unproductive. And, and not feeling himself. Yes, exactly. And, and attributed himself with having um, physical tics and, and so on. Um, so it, it can't help but agree that, you know, he must have kind of drawn upon that feeling. Well, it's inevitable. I mean, every writer does this to some extent. You always use elements of your own life, your own experience, things you've seen, things you've been through. And you, you transform them in different ways. And, and, you know, it's perfectly natural for Lovecraft to do that. But more powerfully for me is the fact that his Peasley's, uh, the only son that Peasley gets back is his youngest son, who is uh, eight years old when he gets his father back from the possession. And that's the same age, give or take a month or so, that Lovecraft was when his father died. Huh. So it's almost a wish fulfilment. He's casting himself in the role of the son there. It's almost a wish fulfilment of getting back his father, who 
you know, at that time was in a, you know, in a, in an asylum and, you know, died uh, and was, a you know, uh, become a different person, one might say. Oh, yeah, tertiary syphilis, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he would have, uh, there's kind of a wish fulfillment going on there that, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, father could have come back and... Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of himself in this. Yeah, I think so. Well, I think you can say that of a lot of Lovecraft stories. To a degree, but, I mean, he reflects on, you know, aspects of mental illness that he'd seen in his family and so on, but this seems more more strong in, in that aspect to me. I can't think of another story in which he's reflected on his childhood so directly and that kind of um, relationship between him and his father, if indeed, you know, we're right in reading that in. Hmm. Yeah, the only other story I can think of that might have any allegory for his childhood would be The Outsider. And we see some parallels with The Outsider here with, you know, uh, his aversion to looking in mirrors. And again, his mother described him, I think, to, to friends as being unsightly and, um, you know, hideous to look upon. I'm not sure what her words were, but that was kind of the implication that she told people. Uh, but seeing photos of the guy, he doesn't look that bad. Um, but I, I guess she kind of part, almost inevitably passed on that complex to him. And perhaps this uh, this shunning of mirrors kind of comes from that to some degree. You're only saying he doesn't look that bad because when I saw that picture that someone <laughs> posted online recently of Lovecraft done up as a punk with a different haircut, he looked just like you, Paul. <laughs> he did, actually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm just wondering what Paul looks like with a punk haircut now. <laughs> The thing is, the punk haircut they gave him wasn't too different from Paul's real haircut, just a bit spikier. <laughs> Reflecting on the way the great race travel through time, which, you know, they, they do travel through time, what is it that they send through time? Well, they don't have anything physical to send because they are very much immaterial beings. Um, I just see it as there are beings of will and consciousness, that, that is, it's energy that they circumvent time with. Not so much they send it through time, they they are removed from time in the same way that any other race is. But that's an interesting metaphysical thing, though, because it's not just them that's moving around. You can't point at this as being something that's specific to the great race, because obviously they exchange places <laughs> with other creatures, including human minds. So this is almost Lovecraft in some way uh, embracing the idea of a soul. I think so, because he, he explicitly says that sometimes the... Uh, the, the the great race member that has gone into the future and possessed the body there, that body might die and that and there's you know, that, that great race member is lost. But the person they inhabited and possessed, who's now you know back 150 million years ago where Peasley was, is left there to live out their life as a member of the great race. Me as Paul is an independent thing, an independent spirit, free from my body. Yes, that is not directly based on, you know, the neural connections in your brain. Yeah. Which is quite a step on for Lovecraft, I would yeah. say. Yes, it is downright metaphysical. Mm. Whether it's a step up or a step down, I'm not sure. <laughs> or sideways. <laughs> but it's, it's different. It's, it's just a jump to the left. And a step to the right. <laughs> and crawling on the planet's face. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing I think that stops this being a horror story, perhaps to some degree, is the fact that the human race, 
we're kind of leapfrogged by the great race. They're not going to come and terrorize us. They're not going to. Do, they they come and possess the odd person. Yeah, they, it, they, it's few and far between. Yeah, they don't terrorize us on mass, but they do terrorize us as individuals. The human race is going to be living out its existence, uh, and is that disturbing that the human race is going to die out? You know, in this story, it explicitly says that the human race will have passed away and other races will arise and the beetle race will be, you know, the last one. For a speed bump, they passed over us and they just happened, a few of them happened to look down at what they were treading over. But is it, it is it disturbing as a reader, as a human being well, reading it? I, I think it depends on who you are, really. Again, if you embrace the, the, the more nihilistic, pessimistic view that there is nothing fundamentally special about humanity and that, you know, there's nothing about our consciousness that makes us special, that it's just something that happens, it's a purely biological process and that it doesn't embody us with any special meaning in the grand scheme of things, then, no, there's nothing disturbing about it. On the other hand, you know, if you have more of a view that, you know, we're perhaps divinely created or that there is something inherently divine or, you know, at least special about humanity, then, yes, you know, saying that we're so insignificant is actually quite an affront. I look at it more from somewhere akin to the first um, viewpoint there, just a look of realism. Nothing lasts forever. It will end. I'm not going to argue with that, but <laughs> I'm just saying not everyone sees things that way. I, I do. I'm a pessimistic fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think it is pessimism. No, it's realism. Yeah, I don't feel it's optimistic or pessimistic. It's just, like you say, Matt, realism. I don't... I don't really feel any emotion towards that maybe a sense of wonder but yeah and now we discuss the various adaptations of the shadow out of time the shadow out of time is probably you know for one of lovecraft's bigger stories is one of the ones that's probably had uh fewer adaptations than most I would say so. Looking around on YouTube, there is a, a nice 15-minute short uh, with some great... Well, I, I was going to say animation, but they they're, they're look like 3D animated um, effects uh, of little, uh, you know, great race of Yith cone people and uh, flying polyps attacking them and they've got lightning guns. Yeah. and but, but also mixed in with some live action. So, yeah. So, so you've got an actor who's actually playing Peasley going yeah. through the whole thing. It condenses the story quite nicely. It's, um, yeah, it's 15 minutes long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. If I remember, I'll put a link in the show notes to this. This, this is where you're supposed to remind me, Paul, when you go back and edit this. But yes, apart from that, there aren't really any other short films that I could see. There's certainly no features. I mean, it's kind of, I guess it's quite a difficult one to adapt on a low budget because, you know, there, there's a lot of big stuff to show. Let's not forget Peasley's last lecture. That's Peabody. <laughs> oh, is it Peabody? Peabody's... Yeah. Mm. Professor Peabody's last lecture from yeah. the Night Gallery. Yes. So also thinking that because everything is so detailed and so very visually described, um, that might be off-putting for someone who's trying to do a faithful adaptation because it would be so costly. But yeah, that's but it. <laughs> that, that said, I mean, that 15-minute that short does a fantastic job of it. Oh. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't stopped 
myriad filmmakers from uh, adapting Lovecraft, <laughs> they don't tend to worry too much about being true to the subject matter <sighs> in general. Yeah, this is why Stuart Gordon's From Beyond isn't ten minutes long. Yeah, very true. <laughs> and most of the story happens before the credits. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society also did one of their Dark Adventure radio uh, productions of it as well. Yeah, I've not heard that one, but, I mean, they do a fantastic job. Um, yeah, I must admit, the only one of theirs I've heard so far is at the Mountains of Madness, which was terrific. Yeah, I do want to get more, because I've got, I think, the Dunwich Horror. And once you open the CD case, there are so many, uh, I was going to say handouts, they're not handouts, <laughs> kind of prop documents and so on, stuffed into it that, you, you know, you can never actually get it closed again. They, they, you know, they give you your money's worth. Some fantastic stuff. There are quite a few adaptations in comic form, but not too many major ones that I could find again. Uh, I'll, I'll try to provide a few links, but uh, I, I didn't really see any standouts there. But of course the adaptation that most people will have encountered the Yithians in, I imagine, is the video game, uh, Call of Cthulhu Dark Corners of the Earth, uh, which actually starts out uh, with um, someone going into... I, 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 the cellar of a house, if I remember correctly, that's got all sorts of weird Ithian technology in there and, and weird shit happens. Oh, right. It's set in Innsmouth, though, isn't it? Well, the, it the, is. this is sort of the, the, the pre-game bit before oh, we okay. go to Innsmouth. Right, right. And uh, there are Ithian elements that crop up again throughout the game. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually showed this to you sometime. You did, yeah. The, the but I was just thinking, out. well, I remember the bit in Innsmouth. I don't remember that. Oh, no, no I, I showed you the Ithian bit as well. But I'm just, it yeah. just occurs to me, when did that game come out? It must be about 10 years old. At least, yeah. It's a really old game now. I remember when it came out. Yeah. Oh. But no, I'm a bit yes, because you're so fucking old, Matt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 10 years is a long time for me, damn it. But I remember the. Um, I've watched a walkthrough of the end of the game where someone had uh, posted, mainly because it was like, hey, I managed to complete the game and have no sound at all left. Woohoo! It was like perfect record as far as they were concerned. <laughs> um, where it ends with the. Um, if Spoiler! I remember, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I remember, it, it ends with the flying polyps trying, um, in the course of taking out the, uh, the city of the Great Race, and that it's the final kind of debrief between the Ithian before he gets sent back. Into, oh. the, into the asylum. Another adaptation that we may have already made some tangential reference to is The Shadow Out of Tim. And what a great title is that. By the darkest of the hillside thickets, who, if you're not familiar with them, are a band from Canada that have been around since the early 90s. Yeah, and they've done lots of Lovecraft-inspired music. Uh, now, yeah, I'm not really much of a rock fan normally, but Darkest of the Hills, I think it's one of the few rock bands that I actually like. Yeah, I, I, I encountered their stuff a, um, a fair time ago. Um, I normally have it playing away in the background when I, uh, I'm i sitting down with a notepad trying to think of scenario seeds and so on. Um, up until fairly recently, uh, my favourite of their tracks has been one called, um, called Cthulhu Dreams. Um, they have, at least for some of their uh, tracks, they like to take audio clips from different sources. So you've got clips from The Resurrected, uh, The Dunwich Horror, and various other ones scattered throughout um, Cthulhu Dreams, including a great little snippet of Vincent Price saying, Never send a monster to do the work of an evil scientist. And it is <laughs> it's fan it's fantastic. Um, but that's been somewhat supplanted now because the um, my favourite of all their tracks has to be from Shadow Out of Tim. Some things man was not meant to know. Oh yes. it's a brilliant track. Yeah, they they do some great stuff. And I was kind of heartened to when I look back through their catalogue. It was like there's Shadow Out of Tim. There's um, 
uh, what's the space one? Um, Spaceship Zero. Spaceship yeah. Zero and so on. And it's kind of got yeah. in brackets CD, CD. And then you go back and it's like 90s cassette. Cassette. <laughs> <laughs> so they're early releases just on cassette. Marvellous. Yeah. And you mentioned Spaceship Zero there. I mean, Torrin Atkinson, the singer of uh, Darkest of the Hillside Thickets, is actually an RPG writer and artist. He's a very prolific artist. Mm-hmm. And if you go to RPG Geek and, and put his name in there, he has more credits in there than anyone else I've ever looked up. Uh, I mean, he's got something like 20 pages of art credits, yeah, and I mean, he's done stuff for everything from D&D to Delta Green, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, he, he does fantastic work. But also, you know, uh, Spaceship Zero, uh, there is a Spaceship Zero role-playing game. Uh, it's still in print, it's from Green Ronin, I believe. Still in print? Yeah. Wow, okay, yeah. Or at least, yeah. it, it's still in print still electronically. I, I, oh, think, okay, yeah. I think they may do a print-on-demand version as well. Yeah, uh, but which is kind of deep ones in space, as yeah. I recall. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, we really must get round to trying that sometime. I think we should, yeah. Given the strength of his other stuff, I think we should definitely check it out. And we, we were trying to arrange an interview with him, but unfortunately, schedules didn't work out. Um, but, but, but we we are determined to have him on the show at some stage. So. He seems happy to, to join us for a future show, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and he's an experienced podcaster as well. If you get a chance, listen to the podcast that he does with a couple of friends called Caustic Soda. Uh, there is some fantastic stuff on there. But going back to the shout-out of Tim itself, I mean, one of the things I like about it is this is very much inspired by the shout-out of time. I mean, it uses Yithians, uh, it uses a similar kind of, you know, someone trying to fill in the gaps of what happened to them when they were possessed. But takes it off, I mean, for a start, it's modern day, it starts off in New Zealand, and it, you know, it tells its own, you know, idiosyncratic story. Yeah, it's very much a kind of a, a rebooting, almost, of shout-out of time, really. It's kind of a retelling of it um, with Torrens. I don't know, a combination of Torrin's imagination and, and the, the original Lovecraft story. Yeah, and it is very funny in places. Yeah. Even down to the front cover artwork of the um, of the album that's very reminiscent of some of the 70s uh, Lovecraft paperbacks. Yeah, I, I, there is one particular uh, 70s paperback which that, that is an almost direct pastiche of, and I'm trying to remember what it is. It's like the old Panther ones, isn't it? It, it is one of the Panther ones, and it is one very specific one. Uh, but with that kind of melting mm, face. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I wish for the life of me I could remember. I've got a feeling it might actually be an August Erlith one instead of a... Mask a of Cthulhu? One. Yeah, I'm not sure. But it'll be in the notes, won't it, Scott? <laughs> yeah, right. And Torrance given me permission to include a couple of excerpts from tracks. So the music you hear in this show, that will be from The Shadow Out of Tim. Yes, and I will try to remember to actually put some links to um, uh, some YouTube clips uh, into the show notes as well so you can hear a bit more. Trying to remember that we are technically a gaming podcast, let's have a look at how we can use the Shout Out of Time in games. 
Well, this story gives us a lot of stuff to draw upon. We've got some um, ancient Egyptian monks explaining Nalathotep. Doesn't say what he says, but you know, we get an explanation. So there, there are lots of little things in here, but some of the main things, I guess, would be the, the great race. Yeah. Well, the great race, they're cities, which, you know, we know there's at least one that is still extant upon Earth. Uh, there could well be others. Um, and and who knows what other technology are theirs or, you know, we know that they have all these cylinders which contained writing, uh, which in some cases will hold future histories or strange ideas. And those are all buried in that city. Some of them are going to be readable to modern humans. Uh, that could be a fascinating treasure trove. I mean, yeah, I, I, you could have a great scenario hook where just one of these, you know, ends up getting into common circulation, and it just contains some revelation about the near future that's so horrible and so nihilistic that you know everyone who reads it just kills themselves and is just going around like a cursed object. Yeah, like what, like the ring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you've got the the ultimate clue dispenser here, really, because you've got people from any period, any time, just, just writing stuff down. Um, stick in whatever you want, really. Well, we've also got the idea that there are these rogue Yithians who are trying to escape uh, their terminally old bodies and are jumping you know, forward in time, possessing people, leaving you know, their poor victims to die in the past, and who might be there trying to assimilate in human society or might be doing something completely different. I mean, bear in mind these are still you know, immensely intelligent aliens who have got access to information and ideas which are beyond human comprehension. I want would one of these do in the human world? Would they become a cult leader? Would they become a great scientist? Would they become a writer of weird fiction? <laughs> or maybe even one that knows what's coming and decides that they maybe want to tip the scales in their balance and try to alter the course of history. Yeah. Yes, yes, they realise that they've made a slight miscalculation and, and possessed someone who's a bit too close to some cataclysmic event mm -hmm. and are just desperately trying to stop it. But doing so in such horrifying ways that any Cthulhu investigator worth their salt would try to stop their actions. Pesky investigators trying to stop all the interesting stuff happening every bloody time. <laughs> Yithians, as they're described in the stories, though, um, they, they seem to be fairly straightforward in a lot of ways. They're interested in knowledge, uh, they're, they're scientists, and so on. But, you know, I, I sometimes feel like this is sort of a very reductive Star Trek approach to things where, you know, in, in Star Trek you get the ship, they turn up at a planet and the entire planet is a single civilization and everyone behaves in the same way. And of course, you know, <laughs> that, 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 that is just ludicrous. And again, you know, Lovecraft shows us a, a you know, small facet of Yithian behavior. I mean, what if the Yithians that we've seen in this are just, you know, for example, the librarians, and they're a fairly small subset of the Yithians that are out there. Mm. But there are the ones who, you know, maybe have got strange religious ideas or are more martial or, you know, mad in some respects or political. And, you know, what, what if some of these end up in human society? Well, like you say, I mean, you get rogue ones. They, they could have any attitude you know, when, when they come to us. They could be deranged. They could be they could have other agendas. But whatever agenda they have... Um, one has to bear in mind that, well, unless, of course, they get stuck here, they, they have the ability to jump through time back and forth. Um, 
it, it's kind of hard as a a keeper, I think, trying to figure, trying to put yourself in the shoes of one of these beings, you know, to kind of think to, you know, as a keeper to try and play them in some way and portray them and sort of think, you know, what would they be doing uh, is, is quite, quite tricky. Well, and also, you know, we've established from the story that part of the way that they jump around in time is through using technology. They create these strange devices with mirrors and moving parts and so on. So there's nothing that's stopping them doing that again. So you get this rogue Yithian that's ended up in the present day. You know, if, if he's happy building another one of these devices, that doesn't necessarily have to send him right back to the distant past. I mean, you know, he could use it to go back to last Tuesday. We well, say there's nothing to stop him, but curiously in the story, we are told that he is, uh, Peasley, is visited by a human, um, well, by a human, by someone else. And that's when the, the strange device turns up. Yeah, my interpretation of that, and you know, this is just me, is that that you know that that assistant's role in that was primarily to remove the evidence. Mm-hmm. But he turns up, creates this device. Then, when Peasley goes back into his own body, that device isn't there to be seen. They don't want that falling into human hands. Of course, was that another member of the Great Race? Yeah, was that guy yes. possessed? Who knows? Or was it just one of the uh, members of the cult, which apparently help uh, members of the Great Race? Yeah, I've I've looked at it from my interpretation of what I've read in the story is that it's part of this network of agents that they have, which potentially the um, as you said one of the major advantages they have is being able to see what's coming. Um, that's a great way to entice people as saying, "Here, Jordan, next week's winning lottery numbers. All you've got to do is a few favors for me here and there." Or alternatively, if they betrayed themselves in mystical or religious terms, you know, then that could very much build up a very literal cult around them. They, mm. they could be seen as being you know, great enlightened masters coming to teach the secrets of the eons to, to humanity. Mm. Talking about cults working with the great race of Yith puts me in mind there was a story in one of the Delta Green fiction collections which, um, which shows one of these cults in action uh, We'll put it in the show notes, which story that was, but it's just popped into my head. A really good story. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, they, they visit a guy's uh, flat or apartment and he's got loads of um, equipment in his room, strange uh, devices that he's making. Yeah, nice one. Neat. This is another story that, you know, like the thing on the doorstep, involves personality transfer or possession or you know, mind swapping or however you want to look at it. So, the, I mean, this is another way that you can explore that in a game. Um, I mean, one possibility, you know, depending on the kind of people you play with and how much of a red herring you want to throw in, is you could even have a player character in the game who is a Yithian possessing someone who is there to do his own kind of mischief as a kind of cat amongst the pigeons. Potentially. Um, I mean, as a player, that's quite a difficult thing to play. That's my, my yeah. reservation. You know, either you've got to give them some massive info dump um, or explain what their agenda is or, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. I'll be very happy playing that. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I quite like that. Okay. Another idea that's occurred to me, I mean, this is something I really want to do as a convention game at some stage, uh, is 
having a game centred around a self-help group for people who have all had the same weird experience. Or, <laughs> you know, nice. you know, <laughs> survivors of the great race meeting once a week in this kind of church hall, <laughs> sitting there drinking shitty coffee and, and sharing all the, the, the strange dreams they've been having. <laughs> the shadow out of Fight Club. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> First rule is you don't talk about Yith. <laughs> God, that's it. I'm Tyler Durden as a Yithian. <laughs> His name was Wingate Peasley. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> well, that's it. That's the Fight Club twist. There was only one of them. That's what <laughs> yeah, I'm <laughs> oh, oh, no. I know this because Wingate knows this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's your twist, Lovecraft. <laughs> That's why you never see them really talking to each other, only conversing by letter. <laughs> it's all the delusion that he's built in his mind after his consciousness snapped in Australia. Oh, fuck, we spoil Fight Club now as well. I might turn that out. Oh. It's a bit unfair. Of course, the big theme that this story brings into gaming potentially is time travel. Which, personally, I find a real pain in the arse to deal with in-game. It's the bane of continuity and logical progression in any scenario. Yeah, it's okay when you're writing a story, but when you've got, you know, when you allow the players to interfere with it... Yeah, and start calling t- causing temporal paradoxes and shit like that, yeah. That's funny, though. <laughs> <coughs> no, it's not. Hang on, who, who did shoot the mayor? Don't. Huh? Don't. <laughs> <laughs> But you could have fun in a game, I suppose, trying to interact with the great race in all sorts of ways. You've got all sorts of other methods in you know, Lovecraft uh, and your Call of Cthulhu in general for time travel. So you've got things like the Plutonian drug and time gates and so on. So I mean, there's always the possibility of perhaps even going back and physically interacting with the great race. Though, of course, that would probably be a pretty dangerous thing because you know, who knows whether the atmosphere was breathable to humans in those days. Probably not. There's a way to find out. <laughs> yes. Yeah, send one investigator through, see whether he comes back. <laughs> Wait for the prearranged signal. <laughs> <laughs> but even then, I mean, there are spells that you know, allow you to protect consciousness through time in Call of Cthulhu the same way as the Great Race do to some extent, just with magic instead of technology. So, I mean, you could even have a scenario where, you know, if the Great Race have screwed around with your life, uh, enough, or you're worried that they're playing around with, with time in ways you don't like. You could even have a scenario where you're projecting your minds back in time and taking the fight back to them. Mm. That's but, interesting. I mean, that that would be the more pulpy end of the scale. Oh, hell but, yes. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that would make for quite a fun scenario. That, you know, you, you've got a group of people projecting their minds back, you know, 150 million years, taking over a bunch of very surprised-looking Yithians and causing chaos to try to stop something happening. But is there any way we can get one of these insect creatures, you know, into the game? Because they're the ones that I like. Yeah. I don't know why. I'm I so prefer, drawn I prefer to the cones. Do you? No, I want to meet the insect overlords. <laughs> well, again, yeah, time gate. You could actually bring one back through time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in fact, I mean, that, that'd be quite a, a an interesting thing for a sorcerer or a cult to do. Create a time gate, bring one of them back through and have them spill the secrets of the demise of humanity, perhaps at the hands of the great old ones, as a way of, of hastening it. You, know, you walk into a house and all you think is it's just inf- uh, infested with cockroaches or bugs. Well, indeed, have they travelled to a time beyond the, you know, when the stars are right? 
you know, the the the, the beetle creatures from a time, you know, after that, after the end times. Well, I mean, is that it, why the great race are jumping that far to leapfrog all of humanity? Well, yeah. I mean, you've got to assume if the, if you accept the idea that there's a continuity to Lovecraft stories. I mean, that is stated outright in the Call of Cthulhu that the stars will become right, humanity will become as the great old ones, you know, wild and killing with abandon and so on. That yeah, then you know that that is obviously some form of the end times. That may be the thing that wipes us all out. In which case, yes, e- exactly. One of the Beatles from the future could actually tell us all about that and could actually you know, hold the secrets as to you know, how to prevent it, how to hasten it. But um, with the whole time travel thing, does it need to be one of the Beatles from the future? Couldn't it be one of the great race from the past? Because they don't, don't they know that stuff already? And here is another problem with time travel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it could even all be written on one of their cylinders the, uh, somewhere under the ground in Australia. Maybe that's the thing that's driving people insane. From a gaming point of view, another thing in this I particularly love is the fact that, you know, sort of like uh, the rats in the walls, you know, this is about exploring a great sinister underground place, mm-hmm. but one with a very different feel uh, mm. to the one in the rats in the walls. I mean, that's got a much more kind of gothic uh, feel to it. This is more alien and horrible, with you know unknowable creatures whistling uh, through the corridors. Yeah, you you do get to touch on it in one of the published campaigns, uh, without being the, putting the spoiler alert in there. I remember when I played it that it was definitely oh this this is a really good evocative, really interesting and colourful section when you actually got to the city and started wandering around it, um, being this huge underground collection of caverns and tunnels and so forth that took hours to walk down because you were so small yeah it was pretty cool i kind of wish i'd reread this story when we were playing that campaign now mm-hmm. um because uh it was so long after i'd read the story when we played that that uh, i didn't really remember much of it but... and of course getting to meet a, Yith- a cone like Yithian in the flesh mm. oh nice yeah um they did give an um, example of one of their names there lots of k's and z's well, like it was snoring with a stutter. It was like... Oh, I remember that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just before I got on obsession with dentistry. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Seen the flying polyp and all its mouths. Lots of teeth. All the teeth. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. And the last thing, yeah, that, that certainly I wanted to touch on with the gaming aspect is, you know, going back to this idea of Peasley having family connections. More importantly, that his family is directly impacted by the horror that he undergoes. This ties in very nicely with the idea of backstory connections in 7th in edition. The fact that you do have these important people. That you've got the, you know, your character doesn't exist in, in a vacuum. That he or she has people who care about them, that they care about in turn. And these relationships are affected by the horrors that they undergo. They can be corrupted, they can be destroyed. And this is exactly what happens in The Shadow Out of Time. Yeah, down to the fact that the, the main um, investigator player character has already introduced his backup character in the form of his son. <laughs> in case it all goes wrong, I've had a series of correspondence with... Da, da, da. Yeah, Can you think of a name for your new character? Um, I'll just, I'll just cross, the, cross first the first name. name. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just cross out the first name, put Professor. <laughs> yeah. What's he do? He lectures at the university. I, I'll just leave that bit in as well. <laughs> 
Yeah. We've all played with that player. <laughs> what would have been uh, slightly more uh, tongue-in-cheek for me, admittedly, again, somewhat prescient if Lovecraft had done it, we called him Doctor instead. Doctor Who, time travel, uh. multiple iterations <laughs> of the same person with different, slightly different names or faces. <laughs> I was thinking about my friend Sol in New York years back, who played uh, in a particularly brutal game of Masks from the Alathotep, I think, played lots of members of the Smythe family. And it, it was just like every time his character died, another Smythe would come out of the woodwork and just <laughs> take his place. And it was terrific. I mean, it just became this fantastic running joke of just this endless number of Smythes. It's like our resident uh, Keeper Matt Knott with the uh, the endless branches of the Dibden family. Ah, yes. <laughs> yeah, we've seen many of those. Yeah, yeah. Even, even in the, uh, the Pulp Cthulhu game, uh-huh. Yeah, the Dibden. Yeah, I want to see the family tree. There, it's. I think we do need that. I think we should. Yeah, it's probably written on a Mobius strip. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Suddenly he encounters a Yithian and he becomes his own grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so much as a tree. It's more of a. It's more of an Ouroboros. <laughs> when it comes to the monsters that are portrayed in this, I mean Lovecraft, as I said in in the show, he gives a really. Uh, detailed description of the cone-shaped bodies of the great race and he gives quite a bit of description although we don't actually see them uh, of the what we know as flying polyps I think um, those, those some of those quotes are probably used in the rule book word for word at the start of the monster descriptions but it's always really good to go back to Lovecraft's story and see what he actually said about the monsters because a lot has been added on um, in, in the game. Yeah, it becomes this, this bizarre retelling, almost a palimpsest, where you're picking up these second-hand descriptions or you're seeing you know, what people have created over the original descriptions. Like the wind attack that flying polyps have, for, for example. That's somebody's interpretation of it. But it, you know, if you want to, go back to Lovecraft's story. See what he said about flying polyps or whatever you want to call them, these polypus things. He gives, he describes a lot of their attributes. You can go back to that, scrub off all the stuff that's been added to them and build them up yourself. Mm. I'd also say it's probably one of the most described monsters. Um, instead of being some unnameable, undescribable half uh, insect, half beetle. O- octopus, half humanoid, no, great Cthulhu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My half insect, half beetle didn't really work, did it? Oh, it was on the brain. Half insect, half well, fish. It, it depends whether you're spelling beetle with an A. It could be George Harrison from the waist up. <laughs> but this is something Lovecraft did much more in his later stories. He, he started becoming a lot more free and, and uh, detailed with the descriptions. I mean, you see it in The Mountains of Madness, where he goes into a fantastic amount of description on describing the altar things there. And, you know, in, in this story, but, you know, in, in his earlier pieces, then, yeah, it is much more along the lines of, you know, a, a very brief evocative thing or, you know, I can't possibly describe this because it was too horrible. Mm. The three-lobe burning eye. And to be honest, I like both approaches because there, there is something very evocative about that phrase, the, the three-lobed burning eye. That whole section at the end of The Haunter of the Dark is quite terrifying. And if... He'd stopped at that stage to put a long description in. It would have weakened it. Yeah. The description has its place, and definitely in this encyclopedic essay-like description that he gives, it very much has its place. (laughs) 
now it's time to wrap things up. What do we all think of this story? You know, we've, we've talked about it in great depth about the synopsis of the story and the, uh, the, the gaming applications of it. In a nutshell, what did you make of it, Matt? I love the idea of the great race. I think they are a wonderful concept. I'm just so, so sorry that unfortunately the story seems shit. It's too long. It's, it's not enjoyable to read, but the, the core idea at the center of it, I love. Say so, idea, great execution. You don't agree with Lynn Carter that this is like Lovecraft's pinnacle. Funnily enough. I get that. <laughs> Scott? I see it as being a curate's egg of a story, that there are parts of it which I think are terrific, I, particularly the description, as Matt says, the ideas. Uh, some of the subtle bits of horror, I, the, the whole personality dislocation and losing your identity, this idea of being trapped in an alien form, particularly the people uh, who are st had their bodies stolen by the terminally ill great race. I find that an absolutely horrifying concept. Uh, and th there are all sorts of bits like that which really make me love the story. On the other hand, yeah, the writing is as dry as Lovecraft ever got, and it's weird. I. When we've been talking about stories here, or when I've been doing research uh, for things I've been writing, I've gone back and I've reread a lot of Lovecraft recently for the first time in about 30 years. I, I, I read all his stories when I was a teenager, and I've reread a number of them you know, in the years in between, but I'm, I'm rereading a lot more of them now. And this is the first one out of all of them that I struggle to get through. Um. It's not a bad story, it is a dull one. Or at least dull in its execution. Well, I suppose it'd be rude not to ask you what you think, Paul. When I was reading it, I found that I was having to kind of skim parts of it because it was so dense and there was so much information in it and, and the story wasn't moving very quickly. But looking at it for this show and going back and kind of rereading it again, I think it's it, it does read, as I've said, a bit like an encyclopedic entries. You just pick a random paragraph uh, and and just read it. There's there'll be like half a dozen things in there about different entities or gods or whatever. Um, there's stuff about Nalathep. There's stuff about you know the past, the future, all sorts of stuff in there. That I, I think it's it's not a very engaging read. It's no Shadow of Rinsmith in, oh, or, God, no. or or Mountains of Madness in terms of of, of gripping, evocative story. Um, but what it does have is that overarching Cthulhu mythos, tying so many threads together, mentioning so many things that it's it's almost a, a piece apart from his, his other work. And as you say, I mean, if you're looking to mine a story for ideas, I, I don't think you could pick a better one than this. No, there is so much to mine from it. Yes, I'll give it that. The Yithian intelligence has finally let go of our bodies now and we can stop talking about this bloody story. What story? We're here to talk about a story? What? It's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com insects called the human race.
space. 